Hi. Oh, there we go. Great. Um, well, we are starting a new series on Sunday mornings, just for the next four weeks, on the theme of... Which shouldn't be a huge surprise, really, should it? Because we are called Oxford Church. Church. Yeah, so uh, clearly this is so important to us that we put it in our name. Uh, this morning, I'm going to explain why community matters. And uh, it's going to be a slightly different kind of talk to normal in that it's going to be somewhat more theological. It's explaining why community matters to us. So whether you're in the habit of doing this or not, this morning is a morning when you just might want to take notes. I'm giving you a moment to rummage around and find something because there's quite a little bit of detail. We're going to look at a number of verses in the Bible. And I have the wonderful task of explaining to you this morning the Trinity. So there we go. We are a people for God. And the very idea of community, it arises from the nature of God, of whom God has been since before time began. And the word that we use to describe that is Trinity. There is no single verse in the Bible, there is no single passage in the Bible that explains all of this together. Rather, the Bible teaches us a number of different truths, which when they are all put together, add up to the picture that is rightly called Trinity. What are those truths? Well, here are seven truths about God, together with the references in Scripture where you can look these things up. The first is this, that there is only one God. There aren't many fragmented there's not a sort of population of powerful beings who made the world, but there is one God. It's a fundamental aspect of Judaism that is also a fundamental aspect of Christianity. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one creator of all, not some population of, of powerful beings. Second thing is that the Father, that is the way that Jesus spoke about the one to whom he prayed, the Father is God. Jesus, that's, you can find that in all manner of places in the Gospels, but here's one. Jesus, just before he went to the cross, fell upon his face to the ground and prayed. And he prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but yet not as I will, as you will. Jesus prayed to the Father and made it clear that the Father is God. Here's the, the, another thing, that Jesus is God. In the beginning of John's gospel, it starts with these wonderful words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the identity of this Word is made known where it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. That's Jesus, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then here's a fourth truth, that the Holy Spirit is God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, the second half of the verse and onwards, it says this, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, 
For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That is, the Spirit of God is absolutely divine himself and knows all things about the inner workings of God, and that is because he is God himself. Truth number five. The Father is not the Son. See this in the verse I've already read out. The Son prays to the Father... The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. Similarly, the Father is not the Spirit. It says in John chapter 14 and verse 26 that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send in my name. So the Father is able to send the Holy Spirit because the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct And here's the last one, and you may have guessed where this is going. The Son is also not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, since it says in John 16 that Jesus himself will also, as the Father does, send the Spirit. Jesus says, unless I go away, John 16, verse 7, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit, the word that's used there is paraclete, sometimes translated all kinds of different ways into English, but the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That The Son and, and the Spirit are different. And these seven truths make up a complex problem, which it took the early church several hundred years to solve satisfactorily. It took several hundred years for them to agree upon a way in which all of these truths could be held together and spoken about well. And I want to show you a video now which is all about how to speak well about the the Trinity. So here we go. When I was a kid, my grandma would correct me if she heard me using bad grammar. For instance, if I told her something like, my friend draws good, she would say, no, Dale, he doesn't draw good, he draws well. Grammar lays out the basic rules of a language to ensure we're speaking correctly. And if you grew up with a grammar like mine, you'll know that good grammar is essential to effective communication. So, Christians believe that God is Trinitarian. The word Trinity means three in one, and to say that God is a Trinity means he is one single, undivided God, and yet at the very same time, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This can cause a lot of confusion among non-Christians, who know as well as we do that 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. So either the Christians worship three different gods, or they just can't do simple math. Even many Christians find the idea of the Trinity difficult to explain, so they don't tend to emphasize it a lot. This confusion comes, in part, because often we think about the Trinity as though it were sort of a schematic that describes what God's inner workings look like. And because God is God and we're not, any attempt to sketch out a schematic for God is bound to fail. So perhaps a better way to think about the Trinity is as a grammar for God talk. Just like English grammar lays out the guidelines for using the English language correctly, the Trinity lays out the guidelines for speaking correctly about God. You see, the very first Christians were all first century Jews, and they took the teaching of the Torah very seriously when it says that the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love him with all your heart. There's only one God. That's the most basic rule of God grammar. 
But at the same time, they had encountered the man, Jesus Christ, a first century Jew who taught them to pray to God as if they were talking to a loving father. And then they saw him crucified and rise again the third day. And here's the thing. Their encounter with the living Jesus was so profound that they began to worship him as God. So Jesus is God. That's another rule of God grammar. But then, if someone were to ask them, Are you saying that Jesus is the same as God the Father? They would have had to say, No, Jesus is fully God, otherwise we can't worship him. But at the same time, he spoke to God as his heavenly Father and taught us to do the same. So Jesus is not God the Father. To say that would be bad grammar. Of course, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit came and filled those first Christians up to overflowing with his love. And the experience they had of the Holy Spirit was just like the experience they had of Jesus. So they started talking about the Holy Spirit in the same way as they did Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God. Good God grammar. But the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us and reminds us of his teaching. So he's not the Son or the Father. To say that would be bad grammar. The Trinity then lays out the guidelines for speaking correctly about God. There's only one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is not the Father and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. All those statements are good grammar. But if we say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all just different appearances of the same single God, or if we talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as though they were three different gods or one was not God, in each of those cases we're using bad grammar. But if we say something like, the grace of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all, in that case, we're speaking good about God. Thanks, Adam. So there we have it. The Trinity. Three persons, one substance. One substance, three persons. Three and one, one and three. And the oneness is not any more real than the threeness. And the threeness is not any more real than the oneness. Now, theologians dispute quite how much we really understand about God's inner workings. They, Christian theologians uh, rightly describe how Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit have revealed to us something of the inner workings of what God himself is like. Uh, but there's this debate about how, how much of it do we really understand, how much more of it is there to know. And certainly, in describing the Trinity, we need to proceed carefully. Very frequently, when uh, writers and teachers seek to explain the Trinity, their pictures and stories actually end up clumsily distorting the image of God, rather than being clear. Popular examples today of ways in which people seek to describe the Trinity include that God is a community, which is somewhat helpful in some ways, but rather gives the impression that three individuals came together in relationship, but it places the greatest emphasis on the, on the threeness and doesn't balance it quite as much with the oneness as we ought to do. Whenever you use a simple way to try to describe the whole, there is a danger of it being clumsy and distorting the image of God to some extent. God is, in some ways, like a community. It goes too far to say that the Trinity is 
community, at least in the sense that we understand what a community of three people would be like. Uh, If any of you have read the book entitled The Shack, just don't get me started on that, uh, because I'll I'll have lots to say, but there's a book, when you write a whole novel that attempts to explain through a whole series of pictures and scenes and cameos exactly what the inner workings of God are like. You've gone beyond clumsy to all kinds of uh, mistakes and errors because we have a limited window on the deep inner workings of God. So what can we know with confidence? Well, what we're going to do is look in a little bit more detail, not going to look at everything that the Bible has to say, but look in a little bit more detail about what the Bible has to say about the, the threeness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the difference amongst those three persons, and also have a look at what the Bible has to say about the oneness of God, that is about the unity of God. So here's another bunch of scriptures. Things that show to us the difference in roles between the persons of the Trinity. Uh, so, the Father sent the Son. It says in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shan't perish, but will rather have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So the Father sent the Son. The Son never sent the Father. There's a difference. Here's another thing. This is a really rich passage in John chapter 5 that you may wish to take and read later today. It says, these are Jesus' words. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Verse 25. I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted to the Son also to have life in himself. Wow. Here's a whole number of things that the Father is, has given to the Son, the authority to judge. He's entrusted all judgment to him. He's given him honor, and then profoundly he's given him what, this phrase, life in himself, and the ability to grant life to other people. These are things that the Father has given the Son, and the Son has at no point given to the Father. In keeping with all of that, the Son submits to the Father, and it might be simple to say, you might think you could just read from John chapter 5 and verse 30, where Jesus says, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And you might think that's enough to make a statement that the Son submits to the Father. Some of you will be aware that there's a debate that's gone on around whether that's something that Jesus did just for a bit whilst he was on earth, or whether it truly characterizes the relationship between the Son and the Father, that the Son would submit to the Father. So it's helpful for us that it also says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 28, what will happen at the end of Jesus' final victory in a passage that describes the end of history and the end of time, how things should finally end up. And it says that when 
the Son has done all of those things, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This is in eternity, the Son will freshly subject himself, submit himself to Father God. And there's something in that, and we'll come on to this in a little bit, that makes God all in all. There's something to do with the unity of God that goes along with that way in which the Son submits to the Father. Here's another thing that the Son does that the Father does not do. The Son reveals the Father. In John chapter 14, making our way bit by bit through John's gospel, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you get to see Jesus, what he's like is just what the Father's like. That's because they're both God. But no one ever got to see the Father in order to see what Jesus was like, but rather the Son came to reveal the Father. There's a difference in role. And then here's a little bit about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Son by declaring all that the Father has given to the Son. This is one of a number of things that the Holy Spirit does. Jesus' words again in John 16, the Spirit will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is a little picture of not just individual relationships within the Trinity, but something that the Trinity is acting in together. The Father has given blessings and wisdom and all manner of goodness to... He's not given the Son wisdom, forgive me. I'm getting carried away with something that he might bless us with. The Father has given authority, and he's given life in himself, and he's given glory to the Son. And the Holy Spirit takes of those things that the Father has given to the Son, and the Holy Spirit declares those things to us. And in that, he glorifies the Son by making it clear just how amazing Jesus is because of the things that the Father has given to him. So there are different roles. What we're starting to see is that those aren't just sort of individual roles, like three Sherpas that have gone out onto different bits of the mountain to perform different tasks, but there is a togetherness in the actions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to read all these verses out in the same way, but you can look these up yourself if you're making notes. I recommended that you take notes. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit. It's not like the Father gets on with it and the Son gets on with it by themselves, but together the Father and the Son send the Spirit. It says it in John 14 that the Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. The Father's sending is in Jesus' name. And when in chapter 15 and verse 26 it talks about Jesus sending the Spirit, it says that Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father. There's a togetherness in the sending of the Spirit. It says uh, also that both the Son and the Spirit intercede for our needs. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the Son always lives to intercede for us, 
And Romans chapter 8, the Spirit intercedes for us in groans that words cannot express. We've got the Son and the Spirit both interceding at all times for us, together bringing our needs before the throne of the Father. And uh, this wonderful picture in Jesus' baptism, oh, I haven't clicked on. It's in Luke chapter 3. You can find it in other Gospels as well. But at Jesus' baptism, there is a voice that comes from heaven that says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That's the Father's voice heard from heaven. Some heard it, some just heard thunder. The Father turns up and says, yes, this is my boy. And the Holy Spirit at that moment descends like a dove. And so the Father and the Spirit come at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, kickstart his ministry with words of affirmation and with an empowering by the Spirit. So there we go. There's a quick whistle stop through the, the freeness of God. The fact that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What on earth might all of that mean for us practically? Well, I'm sure there are many more than three outcomes, but three seemed a good number at this point. So I'm sticking with three. Here's the first thing, um, that the fact of human diversity arises from the fact that there is diversity within the very uh, nature of God. When God made people, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, it wasn't like to, to form his image, he needed a whole world full of clones. But actually, when God made people in his image, diversity was written into that because there is diversity within the very nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? And so as we, uh, God works upon us to transform us ever more into his image, there are some ways in which that means us all getting a bit more similar. Uh, you know, we all get a bit more patient. Uh, and, but it doesn't make us all just the same. It's never been God's intention. That's not what it means to be in the image of God. Uh, Here's another thing. uh, That part of that diversity of roles includes authority and submission. See, one of the... uh, um, Probably the, the dominant way of thinking about authority and power between people in our culture is that those who happen to be strongest for whatever reason assert their power over others and claim an authority that others have to put up with. But what we see in the Trinity is something far, far more inspiring, far richer, which says it's possible to have power and authority and for it to be exercised in love and received in love. And there's a quality of relationship that goes along with that, which is not just some... Uh, you know, dog eat dog, nature red in tooth and claw, who's the most powerful, can I put my thumb to squidge you down? But something far richer, something far more glorious, that is part also then of what we can live out as humans made in God's image. And here's a third thing which applies particularly, if some, some of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand, um, but some of you much prefer working by yourself to working with other people. Life would be so much easier if you could just get on with it, and if all these awkward people didn't keep interrupting your work, life would go far better. Uh, And I mean, that may depend a little bit on the kind of work that you're doing. Um, And there are personality differences there as well. But whatever work we have to do, and whatever our particular personality uh, is, (sighs) there's a reason why teamwork makes the dream work, and it's because it's what God's like. 
it's not just a it's not just a random thing that team is a good thing. And maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. So there's a few things that the Bible has to say about God's threeness. Let's also think about his oneness. Going back to this diagram from the video, this is true according to what the Bible says that the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. But there's actually a far more wonderful truth than that. And I want to change this diagram slightly, and it goes like this. It is that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And the Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father. And the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son. It's not just that they're different. It's that they are profoundly loving towards one another. And just as there is a, um, a togetherness in their action, father and son acting together, son and spirit acting together, father, son, and spirit acting together, there is similarly a togetherness in this love. The father and the son together love the spirit. And the spirit in turn loves the father and the son together. He loves the fact that they love each other. And so on all the way around, in all the combinations that you can imagine, there is a togetherness that comes from this love that binds together this eternal unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This love is astonishing. This is a love, I, mean, I wish I could describe it to you. It's this, it's this love, it's, it's vaster than oceans, It is eternal. It has been this way since before time began, and it has lasted through all ages, and it will endure for all eternity. This love between Father, Son, and Spirit is entirely pure. It is utterly perfect. It describes a union without division. It's not a feeling that God happens to have for a moment in time. Rather, it is part of of the very nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, union without division, eternal and limitless love. And this is a love that does not envy. We've seen how the Holy Spirit's role involves pointing us to the Son. And what the Son does is he points us to the Father, who is then the focus of attention, the one to whom we address our prayers. And there's the Holy Spirit, two steps removed from the center of attention for all eternity. Not envious of the Son, but loving the Son. Not envious of the Father, but loving the Father. Finding as much joy in the other's glory as there could ever be in their own. Thus we can rightly say, as the Apostle John also wrote in his first letter, God is love. The universe has its origin not in a God of chaos, but in a God who is love. It's the ground of our existence. We're made in the image of one who is love. Well, that's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, But it gets better. 
See, when God revealed himself to Moses, he said, I am the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love. What that means is that it keeps spilling out. So I'm going to change, this is a sort of diagram heavy morning, but I'm going to change the picture to simplify it a little bit. There's a new picture of Father, Son, and Spirit bound together in love. And here's the thing, there's just an abundance of that love, and it just flows over to people because it's abounding. It can't remain this is, I mean, this is the point at which you know, words and logic and things, they come, they come up against you know, the limits of their capacity because God is infinite and he could, have, could keep an infinite amount of love within an infinite God, except he can't or he won't. His love spills over and it spills over specifically to people. It's a, it's a man, Moses, a human being to whom God reveals himself and says, I am the Lord compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You need to know it. God's love heaves and teems and swarms and overwhelms. It cannot be contained. It is a copious torrent that inundates the earth and all who are in it. And God created people so that he would have more objects of his love. Created us that he might love us. As the world heads up towards 10 billion people, with whatever anxieties that may induce for us, it is still too few people to receive all of God's love. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Rather than living in glorious separation of perfect love for all eternity, that very love that is in the nature of God, compelled Christ to come and to save us because he loves us. Not only is God love, but he loves us. Well, that's good news as well. But it gets even better because there's an even greater wonder to be seen. Not only does God show generosity to us? Through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son, made a way for us to come to the Father. And here's the thing, and to enter into the circle of God's love. We could put it like that on the picture. We get to come to the Father through the Son. We get to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We get to come within the love of God and to share in this union of love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps that's hard to believe. It is hard to believe, but listen to this. When Jesus prayed for unity amongst those who would believe in him, he prayed in a particular way. It's in John chapter 17. He says this, I pray for those who will believe in me that all of them may be one. That's his prayer for unity. I pray for all those who will believe in me that all of them will be one. And this is the thing. He prays, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. I in them you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Jesus' vision for our community as believers in him is not just that we would get on with each other, maybe do some useful things together, have good friendships, whilst he stands on approvingly saying, oh, you're my beloved children with whom I'm well pleased. No. Jesus' vision of unity is, can I get these people in to our fellowship, into our union of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And within that love, then they'll be united, having been brought in. The marriage service that says this as as part of the promise that is made, with my body I honor you, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, Christian marriage is lived out within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's not just in marriage It's for the whole of the Christian life, for the whole church, that our lives, we're invited to live them out within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is such a privilege. This is what Jesus died for, to make a way for us to get to the Father, that we might be... uh, that Jesus might himself live in us, we might be in him, that the Spirit of God would dwell in us, that we would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that we would share in the love of God. This is why sometimes you will hear people say, this Christianity, it's not, a, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Well, it is. And it's about this relationship. Going back to the word trinity, Uh, sometimes people say it slightly differently and say that God is triune, triune God. You may have heard that phrase. And so just to go one stage further and say something that is is true, that God enjoys triunion. He is three in one. Now, we, though we come into relationship with God and we come in within the love of God as we give, as we receive the salvation that he's offered, um, we are not like God in his threeness. None of you is three persons. I'm, I'm not three persons. You might sometimes feel stretched like you're trying to do three different things, but you can't. So we, we don't experience God's experience of tri-union. Instead, for us, what we get to do is we get to come in with him in his union. And the word for that is this. It's communion. Because the word com is a prefix that means with. And this is where the word communion comes from. That we get to be with God in his union, in his triunity, bound together in love. We get to be with him in that. And that is our communion. So what we're going to do in just a moment is something which in many church traditions is called communion. You can see there's bread and there's wine here. And in a moment, Dan's going to lead us. I want to finish just by linking together this unity that we get to participate in of love 
and Christ's sacrifice. Because we see both things, we, we read both things being spoken of by Christ in John chapter 15, where in verse 4, Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. There's that union, that relationship of dwelling together in unity. And then in verse 13, Jesus also says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. And the thing is, as we head towards breaking bread and sharing the wine, enjoying communion with God, that um, we weren't born with a right to enter into this love. It's not like God owes it to us in any way. It's not like we could muscle our way in, knock on the door and say, I think I'm, I think I'm supposed to be at this party. No. Rather, as I've already read, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And his son died on a cross and paid a price for sin that we might be forgiven. He rose from the dead and proved that it had worked and that there was life eternal to await us. And so he made a way through his death. And in our breaking bread, we remember what Jesus did and we celebrate that he made a way that we might enter into communion.